Well, that makes me feel better. <laughs> is uh, is the audio okay for you right there? That sounds great. Good. Can you can you hear me good? Oh yeah, I hear you just fine. Okay. And this this is just going to be audio and not video, right? Yep, just audio. Good. Just good. audio. Well, welcome to Preacher Labs for preachers just like you and I. And today I have the privilege of talking to Jim Harnish. He's a retired United Methodist pastor, author, and Jim, just an amazing human being. Uh, so thank you for coming on Preacher Lab and talking with me. Thank you, Will. It's a, real, it's a privilege to be here, and it's been fun uh, for me because most of the folks you've been interviewing are young clergy who I'm really, really excited about. And um, it's just been so neat to be uh, engaged through your podcast with all these uh, new voices and gives me great hope for the future of the United Methodist Church. Yeah. Well, Jim, I I know that that preaching is a big part of, of your work, your life at St. Luke's and at Hyde Park. And even as you write, um, why, why is preaching such an important part of your work? Why do you think it's this key thing for you? Because that's where I was called. Um, as a kid growing up in the church, preachers were very big in my life. And fortunately, I was blessed to experience some really powerful preaching that was formative for me. And when I look back on my sense of calling, I knew that I had been called to be a preacher. I knew I would do a lot of other things. I knew I'd be a pastor and I wanted to be a pastor. But at the heart, I just had the sense that I was called to be, uh, to use an old phrase, one of Mr. Wesley's preachers. So from the very beginning, I had that target. And then it suited uh, my personality and who I am. I was a drama major in college. Uh, plan heading perhaps to be a high school drama teacher. Oh wow! And um, that that fit, and so uh, it was, and it continues to be the the great passion and the uh, the work to which I've tried to give myself. Do you remember the first time you preached, and what what was that like? Oh yeah, I can't. I could never forget it. I was a summer intern at an inner city ministry project in Pittsburgh, in one of the old housing projects in Pittsburgh. And <clears throat> we had a, um, a single wide trailer. Now you would call it mobile home or manufactured housing. It was a trailer. And as I remember the first Sunday I preached there, there were three of them and one of me. And I had planned for us to sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And uh, that's where it began. I, I got over that summer, I got over needing big crowds to preach to very quickly because there were no crowds, uh, but, uh, but they were patient and, and uh, gave me a chance. How did it? So if you, I'm just thinking about your story of studying drama and then preaching how, how do you how did it feel in that moment preaching to those three people 
um, you know, it's a long time ago. So I'm recreating ancient yeah. history. <laughs> I felt okay. I mean, it felt like, hey, this is what I'm here to do. We're going to have church Sunday morning. Then yeah. matter how it came up, we're going to have church Sunday morning. Yeah. And, and it felt okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, I know that you guests preach a lot now in retirement. What is your process for for guest preaching now? Well, in, in nature of full confession, I'm not doing that much, I guess, preaching, particularly during COVID. <laughs> but until COVID hit, I was doing a lot of uh, workshops, training events, and then they often involve preaching. So um, I would try to be as deeply in touch with the congregation where I was visiting as I could get. I would uh, try to catch up on a little bit on their history, uh, their mission, what was going on there. And frankly, I would always ask the host preacher, what is it that you need me to say for you? Huh. What is it that you need to have your people hear that if the outside guy says it, they might buy it more quickly than if you say it? Is there something I can say that is really going to help reinforce your leadership and your sense of what God is calling this church to be now? So uh, then, of course, always the text uh, that's critical. Um, so how do I preach this text and why have we chosen it for this moment? And what is the fresh thing that I can say about it? Along with, you don't guest preach without leaning back into material you've had in the past. Why would you waste it? I mean, if, if it worked once, it might work again. Look at Tom Brady, you know. Um, <laughs> you uh, so So I would... I would look at that. What am I here for? What's the need of the church? How can I help this preacher? What's the text? What do I have to say on it that might be used by the Spirit in some fresh and creative way? When, <laughs> when you look back at kind of your old, an old sermon, um, like a Tom Brady from the Patriots, and think about you're moving to the Buccaneers, how do you kind of shift yourself from shifting times to shifting context? So what are, what are some ways in which you kind of recreate that particular sermon? Absolutely. I, I think um, the first part of my answer gets to that. I really believe that if we are trying to preach faithfully in this congregation at this moment in time, and with whatever the need is there, one, it's going to always keep us fresh. You can't go stale in a world that's always changing around you. So whatever material I might have used before that I'm going to use again, it's still on a new playing field. And it uh, it can take on a fresh look. So uh, every now and then I'll have somebody ask, how did you... How do you keep fresh over 43 years in the local church? And how did you keep fresh 22 years in the same congregation? And I said, 
you know, I really never had time to worry about that. <laughs> I, uh, everything was always changing around us. For one thing, the, the needs are changing, people are changing, and uh, you stick with the Bible. And I've figured out I can never out-preach the Bible. So the deeper I'm digging into Scripture, the more I'm discovering. Just this morning in my in my prayer life, in my devotional life, it took me to a text that I had, it was in the lectionary, that I had never quite seen that way before. And I couldn't help but find myself saying, hey, I could see how that could become a sermon. Yeah. There's a word there. Um, so I think the combination between being in touch with the reality around us and digging deeply in scripture, um, God is always going to do some fresh new thing. Yeah, and I, I've found that when I've when I've preached, and it's always new because I'm always growing too. I'm learning something. God is speaking to me, whether it be about Lent, whether it be about how much money I give. Uh, I'm learning new stuff, even when in my own spiritual med- meditation, I'm learning. So that kind of just oozes out of me, I think. And that I think that's that's helped me a lot too. I think so. I think the more we are growing personally, uh, the more our preaching can grow. And uh, if you're a Ted Lasso fan, that great clip about curiosity, when he's playing darts with that arrogant uh, former husband of his boss, and the boss is sure that he's going to beat Lasso, this Yankee from the South, uh, in playing darts in England. And Ted doesn't do anything. The other guy puts his darts on the board. Lasso gets up and starts hitting right into the bullseye. He says, you know, if you had been more curious, you might have found out. But I spent my whole life learning how to play darts. I mean, it's just a wonderful expression of curiosity. And I think that is how one of the ways that the Holy Spirit works in the life, actually in the life of every disciple, but particularly in the life of a preacher, is through the gift of curiosity. What is the new new thing here? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I've found that when I'm curious, it takes me down rabbit holes. Um, and it, and and I'll go on a Wikipedia site, which then leads me to a Bible.org site, which leads me down some interesting fact about a fir tree. And I have no idea if that'll if I'll ever use it, but it, the curiosity of how does this work and looking at the world not as I know everything, but looking at it as well, what can this what can God teach me through the world? Yeah, that that opens up a whole lot of things. Yeah. You're on the wall. Yeah. Yeah. Never lose that. Never lose that. Yeah. So, so, Jim, when you think about your experience, um, different preachers have different kind of niches or different things that kind of make them them almost. What would you say your kind of niche? Do you have a niche, a thing that you're like, yeah, that's my thing? I'm glad you let me know you were going to ask that question <laughs> because I'm not sure that's a question I've ever asked myself. And so I... Uh, you know, tried to do some thinking about it. Uh, My wife could probably answer that question better than I can. But as I thought about it, I came to two things. One, my niche is that I'm a preacher in a local congregation. 
So I was never, I, I never felt that I was as effective when I was a visiting preacher somewhere as I was able to be when I was with these people. And I knew the ones who loved me, and I knew the ones who drove me crazy, and I knew the ones who couldn't wait for me to leave, and when I didn't leave, they did. <laughs> and I knew the people who were hurting, and you know, so my niche has always been, how does preaching help this congregation? And how does it help us in this church right now? to become more of what God intends for us to be. And that certainly was the case at St. Luke's. New church started with nothing. But well, what is it that God might want to do with us here? And how does my preaching help shape that? And then at Hyde Park, 93-year-old church that I landed on the corner, uh, but we had to go through major revisioning uh, total rebuilding of the property. How how can my preaching help this church, this congregation, live into its mission and fulfill uh, what God wants it to be doing this in this place and time? So I think my primary niche would I would say is local church, and the other <clears throat> uh, I'm trying to to ask myself. How would the word that I'm preaching today make any sense if somebody remembered it on Monday morning? How can I take this text, this subject, this theme, how can I take it into real life experience? And the, the, the compliment that always meant the most to me was when somebody would say, you know, Jim, you're the same guy on Sunday morning that I hear during the week. Yeah. Well, you, you're you're you, yeah. and I know who you are Sunday morning because I know who you are when we're wrestling over the budget, um, and I, I your voice is the same voice. Yeah, and that I always. You know, gave thanks for that and kept trying to be there. Yeah, yeah. So it seems like, at least in, as we've talked, a lot of your preaching is informed by your relationship with those individuals, those people, the people who are on finance committee and SPR and those people that you get under their skin and they get under your skin. Like all of those people kind of shape a lot of your preaching. Yeah, yes. Uh, absolutely. And even the times that I have been the visiting fireman, uh, I <laughs> tried to get to know, because you uh, often it would be that I'd be doing some kind of training thing uh, on Saturday on discipleship or whatever. Uh, and by the time I had had some meals with people and listened to their stories, um, even when I came to Sunday morning, I, I would at least feel like, yeah, I have a little bit of a sense of what's going on here. Yeah. You know, uh, when Ulysses, I think, said, I'm a part of all that I have met. Um, and I know that the people I've met and the way they've influenced my life 
are uh, a living part of what it means for me, me to um, to be a preacher. Yes. You know, when I when I've heard you preach or watched you preach online, um, I've noticed that you have this deep connection to your tradition as United Methodists. That is, whether it's explicit, you talk about John Wesley, Charles Wesley, the United Methodist Church, history of the United Methodist Church, or implicit in how you talk about grace. That That is, when I've heard you, that's just a central core of you. Um, and I don't know if you recognize that, but I see that just directly whenever you preach. That is great news to me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I am, I am an unashamed Methodist. Yeah. Um, and I am an unabashed Wesleyan. I, I know that God works through all the other branches of the Christian family tree, but this is the branch that, that uh, gave me life. It's the branch that is the taproot out of which I live. And it's, uh, it's the word that I've been given uh, to proclaim. And particularly during these days, I think that's critically important. I, I understand uh, all of the conversation about, well, you know, denominations aren't what they used to be. That's the absolute truth. And I understand folks who want to have a niftier name than United Methodists in their label. I'm glad that I always served churches that were unashamedly United Methodist. Yeah. And I'm I hold on to that for the future. I I can count the problems in this denomination better than most of its critics. But I also know that we have a, an opportunity that um, that is ours to live into. And I like Charles Wesley said, to serve the present age, my calling to fulfill. Well, how do we serve the present age out of that heritage? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Well, I know you've preached a lot of sermons in your life. Um, what do you think has been the best critique or constructive criticism you've gotten after a sermon? Um, yeah, I've been very fortunate <clears throat> excuse me, to have some people who have been honest with me along the way. One was, this is a small thing, but I've been trying to control what I do with my hands, <laughs> my, my body, my hands. And Will, you know from the work we do together in the Institute of Preaching, uh, uh, how important our bodies are. And so I've tried to be more conscious about that. And that was, uh, I would get people saying, your hands were all over the place today. So that would definitely be one. Uh, uh, and I've had folks um, urge me to move toward the more practical application because my brain, my personality type, my everything tends to go to the big picture, to the big ideas. Um, praise God, I married a woman who is really on top of the details or we'd be in hawk to the IRS or something. Um, so I've needed the encouragement of that, okay, great. That's the truth now. 
what do I do with it? Without drifting into um, the uh, acting as if the Bible can tell me how to have everything from a better bank account to a better sex life. I mean, um, preaching in the Bible is not necessarily about giving me five handy tips to have a better life. It's about having a better life because God has done something in Jesus and God wants to do something else. But with all that, I have needed the encouragement to move toward the very practical applications. So that's been a good word of encouragement for me. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so when you preach, when you prepare for a sermon, or even in the past that you've prepared for sermons, it sounds like your wife has been a huge part of that. What does that look? Do you do you run your sermon by her Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday? Or? Almost never. Okay. <laughs> now, you know, I'll, because we'll, we would talk about uh, whatever's going on and what it would, so no question that our shared life together impacts my preaching. But um, I've never asked her to preview or read a sermon ahead of time. Yeah. I've tested ideas on her. I'll say, hey, what do you think about this? And she'll be very honest about that. And then afterwards, um, we met in college when I was in drama and theater, where everything you do is based on criticism. I mean, that's all that's all a director does is tell you what you did well and what you need to change. That was not the way she had grown up. So she had to learn to be more critical. And I've taught her pretty well. She's to have adapted to that. So she will give me helpful criticism afterwards. But no, no, I know people who have their spouse read their sermon in advance. Great if that works for you. But no, that's when she comes to worship, she comes to worship. And how the sermon fits into that is critically important to her, and I really value that. Yeah, yeah. Well, when you think about as you preach, was there ever a time in which you had to change your style or change how you preach because of the context or the moment? Absolutely. Uh, and I think Megan mentioned this in your interview with her. There were some sermons where I knew I needed to be careful about every word. And I would stick close to my manuscript because I couldn't take the risk of, of um, missing that. That's also handy uh, at, like at funerals. I'm a very emotional guy. And if this is a best friend that I'm laying to rest here, I could easily end up with my emotion overtaking me in the sermon. So sticking to the manuscript was a way that I avoided that. So there's sometimes that I'd be very careful. And then there are other times that are looser, that are more comfortable, more, more conversational, and that I could uh, work a little bit more freely than that. So yeah, the style would change based on the content and the setting of the sermon. So for your, it seems like you're, you are kind of a person that's kind of big picture thinking, kind of these abstract ideas. Um, 
how do you focus on kind of the minute details of what particular word to choose, what particular pauses? How do you kind of, it seems like the big picture is your gift. How do you focus on those little details that make a big difference? Yeah. Well, along with big picture, I'm also a neurotic perfectionist. So that helps there. And that's part of why down to this present day, I always write a manuscript. Whether I preach from it or not, I write it because I am also very talkative. And I need to discipline my preaching so that I don't ramble or load the sermon up with clutter that isn't really necessary. So that that was why I would <clears throat> write a manuscript so that I could get it. And every time I would write and rewrite and rewrite, I would tighten it. It would get closer to focus. And do I need this? Can I put that aside? How does this serve the sermon? Yeah. 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 That's really, that's really good. It's, so the preaching you do, you're not stuck to the manuscript, but that really hones down the particular word you want to use or the phrase or the pausing, or even if you write, this is what I'm doing with my hands this time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that's, and I'm also uh, one of the gifts of the spirit in me. I've got a pretty good memory. Uh, when I was in college in drama, <clears throat> I would have to work to memorize my lines, but I realized I didn't have to work as hard as some people did. Mm. So by the time I've hammered that sermon out, it's pretty well embedded in me. And I don't, it's not as if I memorize it intentionally and deliver it as a memorization. It's just that it has become so much a part of who I am that week that it's right there and um, whatever, whatever. I would usually still have the manuscript either on the pulpit or if, if it wasn't on a pulpit, we had a like a light music stand that would be, I mean, I would often have it there so that if I had a quotation that I wanted to be accurate about, I could refer to it or I would, I would print out the quotation, stick it in my Bible, so that when I got to that point, I could open it up and read it. But it, for me, it was about how deeply embedded is this sermon in me? And if it's there, it's it's there. And then Monday would come, that would have to be laid aside, yeah. and you know, on to another one. Yeah, it's like, oh, that's beautiful, because it's almost as if, you embody that sermon, whether it be that week, those two weeks, that month, and you've as you've been working on it, crafting it, it's been crafting, shaping you as well. And then as you've as you come to Sunday, it just it's a natural thing just to come out. Um, and I think that's just beautiful that 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 it works on you, so it's just a natural part of what you're saying. I hope so. I think there's something incarnational about that. And um, I'm not I'm not saying that everybody has to do it that way, but that's the way it has worked in me, given my personality and all that. Yeah. 
so what would you what would be your advice just to kind of shift topics a little bit um what would be your your advice for people who preach sermons in the midst of conflict or strife or polarization which i know none of us experience ever <laughs> what would be your kind of tips and things you've done and learned along the way uh, one be careful in the sense of be care filled uh, i um my background, my heritage is German and Irish, which means I have very strong opinions and I will really let you know about them. So part of the discipline for me has been uh, trying to calm those jets down a little bit because anger is not generally a good motivation for a sermon, uh, depending on what you're angry about. Um, but so I would, I would say be care filled in terms of caring about the the difficulty that you're trying to speak to, caring about the people who are involved in it and, uh, wanting to do it with a, um, with a scalpel and not with a buzzsaw. So that would be one. And then to, um, to stick to the Bible, uh, hunker down behind the scripture, dig deeply enough into scripture and reveal it so that when a person uh, attacks you on it, you can, you can sort of, uh, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Now, here's what the scripture, here's how I hear the scripture. So I think being deeply embedded in scripture and then don't overplay your hand. Uh, hold a few cards for the next for the next round. In other words, you don't have to beat the drum too many times. You, you can you can go there, say what needs to be said, and then pull back. Um, my good one of my best friends was a baseball player, and one time he said to me, Jim. You don't need to swing at every pitch. Yeah. Choose your pitches. Um, and uh, and try to balance that in your preaching over time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really important of trying to figure out what to say when and how much you push. And it's almost as if like, it's kind of this wave of, okay, there's, I can push this much and then I can calm down. Like, okay, let's focus on something else. Because I think I heard somebody say, you can't take someone someplace they don't want to go. Um, and, and you, you can push because if you don't push, it's just, you're not, we're not going anywhere. Um, but how do you, how do you create that balance? I think it's probably the art of it. Uh, easier to try to lead a mule than to push one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And try to draw that along without uh, without compromising. I, you know, we've all been looking at Desmond Tutu lately, and uh, he had this amazing way of disarming people with his humor his self-deprecating 
sort of his laughter, his warmth. And then he could say what needed to be said. And that balance of knowing when to laugh at yourself and get people laughing along and then when to say, well, this has to change. This has to change. That his cackle, that laugh and the way in which he jokes. I mean, it really was like, you can tell me anything and I'm not going to be angry because he just had a, he had a way of like, he had this joy about him that, yeah, we're going to talk about serious stuff, but I'm not going to hold it too heavy. It was just like this, there was this ethereal feeling about him and his sermons and just in his speaking in general. I've been using um, the book of joy. The, the It's the conversation between Tutu and the Dalai Lama. And um, I, I'm only about halfway through. I could take a little bit more of Tutu and a little bit less of the editor who is narrating it, but it's that reminder. And when you when you listen to Tutu, you can hear it uh, just all the time. That that note of joyful assurance that God is going to see this through, yeah. and that that we can be on board with that. Um, well, you've heard me. Quote G.K. Chesterton, angels can fly because they take themselves so lightly. Satan fell by force of gravity. (laughs) Wonderful play on words. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jim, are there any final words you'd want to give to preachers who are listening? Um, Tips, advice, encouragement? Uh, I would say when the going gets rough, go deep. Always dig deeper. And that means digging deeper into your spiritual discipline, dig, dig deeper into scripture, deeper into understanding or trying to understand the people around you, deeper into friendships, that nourish you, encourage you, sustain you, who will be honest with you. So when when things are rough, don't, don't settle for struggling in the shallows. Go, go deep. And I think that, uh, yeah, I think Bonhoeffer represents that. Yeah. And Tutu represents that. And, Peter's story represented that, and Martin Luther King, and you know, go, go through the, um, the really bold witnesses, and you'll find that continual going deeper, yeah. Yeah. and have joy along the way. Yeah, yeah, have that heaviness, that thoughtfulness, and that lightness both at the same time. Yeah. yeah. Well, I know you're right. You're you're in the middle of getting ready to have a book release. Is that right? Uh, well, there's a new one in the file drawer. Okay. It's along very slowly. Uh, the latest one is entitled Finding Your Bearings, How Words That Guided Jesus Through Crisis Can Guide Us. It, um, it emerged sort of the way a sermon does. Uh, my editor said, uh, have you ever looked at where Jesus 
quoted the Old Testament, not where that refers to the Old Testament, but where he quoted the Old Testament. I started studying that and discovered that many of those places are at critical, decisive moments in his life. Well, why did Jesus draw on the Old Testament there? And then along came 2020 and all of the crises that we are still facing. And how could we find wisdom from Jesus to see us through the crisis? So that's where Finding Your Bearings came from. Okay. Um, but I'll make one other pitch <laughs> for preachers. Um, a couple of years ago, um, I did a book for The Upper Room entitled Extraordinary Ministry in Ordinary Time. Granted, we no longer live in ordinary times, <laughs> but that referral is to ordinary time as the ordinary time season in the church here. But um, that's really where I tried to share with younger pastors, new pastors, struggling pastors, what have I found that kept me going along the way? Yeah. I love that Nietzsche quote about a long obedience in the same direction. So that's what uh, extraordinary ministry in ordinary time. There's my commercial. Yeah. Uh, it's trying to help pastoral leaders find the resources to uh, to keep on going. Yeah, and if there's if there's ever been a time that we need that, I mean, it just it seems like 2022 is one of those years of what sustains you and going deeper um, because this pandemic has gone on for a long time and polarization, and all this stuff, it's heavy. So yeah. what, what keeps us, what keeps us floating? What keeps us moving? What keeps us stable? Yeah. yeah. Well, I have one more question for you. Um, sure. I know you mentioned one book that, uh, that you've been reading, but what, Besides the Book of Joy, uh, which is a fantastic book, what would be that one book in the last six months that has really kind of shaped you, helped you, molded you, just really been impactful? Um, any book. It could be children's book. Uh, it can be a commentary. It can be a, I don't know, um, an astrophysic book. <laughs> well, it would definitely be Isabel Wilkerson's book on cast, C-A-S-T-E. Uh, it opened my awareness more deeply to um, what I've inherited as a white, straight, middle-class male and uh, of understanding the continuing struggle with racism and white supremacy and all the rest. So I would have to say that cat we had my wife and I had both read several of the I mean there's some great new books, White Fragility and How to Be an Anti-Racist. But uh Cast was the one that I think spoke well and James Cone, uh The Cross and the Lynching Tree overlaid with that. So I think that's where a real growing point has been for me. And then a more Will you take another one? Yeah, a more, yeah. A more delightful one is The Pilgrimage to Eternity by Timothy Egan. It's his narrative of his journey, his pilgrimage along 
the um, the Camino walking from uh, Canterbury to Rome, oh, wow. a thousand miles. And uh, he's, I think I said, editor, a writer for the New York Times. So he writes very well. And it was uh, a good journey through some church history and French countryside. And yeah, I enjoyed that read. Yeah. All right. These are going to go in my Amazon cart. <laughs> I've got a big cart now. <laughs> well, we also have good libraries. So <laughs> that's a good point. That's a good and point. Where books have not been banned yet. So, yeah. well, Jim. Thank you. Thank you for being on, for having this conversation. It, there's a lot of just really good golden nuggets. And as we've been talking, I'm taking notes. And it's just, this has been really, really good and helpful. So thank you, Will. Thanks for what you're doing. Uh, as I said at the beginning, I'm really enjoying hearing from uh, these younger preachers. And I, uh, I have great hopes. Yeah. Well, thanks, Jim. And we'll talk soon. Okay, thank you, Will.